what we want is for this to be a listening together, and so please do feel free to get involved and, and, and chat with us. Um, you know, I mean, unique is a, is a, is a kind of overused term about musicians, but I think if anyone deserves it, um, it's Nina Simone, and uh, we're going to try and tease that out tonight. I mean, at a time when particularly women were expected to, to be decorative and just be singers, she was uh, kind of a very courageous and very kind of defiant voice for herself and for her own music, and uh, not only as a singer, but as a musician. And um, we kind of, I, I think we, we kind of want to spend tonight kind of reclaiming Nina Simone. A lot of people would know her from, the, 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 her, uh, several of her songs have become very famous because they were used in commercials. And she sort of, uh, uh, her career had a resurgence in the, uh, in the 80s when they used My Baby Just Cares For Me for a Chanel ad. Um, she, was, she didn't like that song and uh, was quite reluctant to, to sing it. Uh, and if you've ever heard any of the live performances of her singing it, you can hear that she really doesn't want to do it. The other thing was that she never made any money out of it because she didn't own the rights to it. So we're not going to play that tonight. We're not playing that game. Uh, but... Uh, so to, to help me um, talk about these, we have a, a, a brilliant panel, um, uh, most of whom have turned up. <laughs> Jamie is, is lost. But uh, we have here um, Dr. Laura Watson, um, lectures in musicology in Maynooth. And uh, Laura teaches a course in jazz history, and she's also made a particular study of uh, women in 20th century music. And Laura was also just uh, elected as the education development officer for Sounding the Feminists. Um, Billy O'Hanlon um, is a writer and a broadcaster, if anybody knows his show, um, on Nota Gurum on Radio Nalifa. And he's a regular contributor on, uh, on radio, but uh, Billy also has one of the best record collections in town. And Billy has, has provided some of the, the, the vinyl that we're listening to tonight. Uh, we try to, to make it vinyl, but uh, there's a couple of things that we wanted to show you that are on video, which is why we have the, the screen as well. So... Um, what we're going to do, the, the format is that we're going we're gonna to play a tune we're gonna, and then we're, we're going to talk about it a bit. Uh, you know they say um, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. But uh, we're going to risk the wrath of the music gods and we're going to talk about music a bit tonight. So what we're going to start with is uh, the, the, a track from her first album in 1957. Um, and we're, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about how that came about. But... This was one recording session, and her first ever recording session in 1957, 13 hours in the studio. They put down about 13 tracks, and from the, the out of the gate, Nina Simone was there. And the, 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 she seemed to emerge fully formed, and some of the, the, the songs that she's most famous for were uh, recorded in, in that recording session in 1957. So we're going to start there. Um, if Colette is ready to roll it. <laughs> oh, you're Roshin. Uh, we're going to start uh, with one of, it, it really is an iconic track of hers, um, Little Girl Blue.
I didn't. Re- I'd for- forgotten that that's quite seasonal, actually, as well. So happy, <laughs> happy Christmas, everybody! <laughs> uh, but I think what is astonishing about that is that uh, she's a 24-year-old woman um, who has never been in a recording studio before, and that's what comes out. Something as as strong and as as personal as that. <laughs> um, Billy, um, we were talking earlier on about like how did she come to be there, and how was she? Uh, 
like we want to talk about like where was she coming from and how did she end up in Philadelphia? Well, just a bit of biographical background. She's born in 1933 in a town called Tyron in North Carolina, and she's one of eight children. And um, she started playing the piano when she was only aged four. And by the age of four and a half, all this kind of prodigy stuff puts us to shame, really. But by age four and a half, she was um, performing in her local Baptist church with three of her sisters as part of a kind of a gospel trio. Her, her mother was the, the preacher, wasn't she? Uh, I'm not sure if the mother was preacher. Her mother yeah. was a the mother Methodist. Was preacher, yeah, she was a preacher. Yeah. So um, from a very early age, she sort of steeped in, in gospel music. But she was noticed while playing in the church by a local white piano female teacher's name, I can't quite remember, but who singled her out and brought her to um, piano lessons where she was introduced to classical music. So from the age of sort of six, seven, eight, she proved herself to be quite a prodigy. And she was playing Brahms and Debussy and particularly Bach, the music of Bach uh, impacted a lot upon her and a lot of that kind of mathematical structure of Bach music comes to play in, in a lot of the solos on that, first, on that first album. When she's 17 and she graduates from high school, she moves to Philadelphia and there she starts to pursue way more serious study of the piano and starts giving lessons in piano and her main objective is to get into Juilliard. But all through her childhood, um, there was a fund set up for her by this piano teacher um, to get enough money together for her to be able to go to Juilliard, which is the most important music school in the States, I think, it's fair to say. And um, so this fund was built up over the years by Nina Simone performing as a child prodigy. So when she was 11, 12, 13, she was doing concert recitals of Western classical music. And that was her main goal, was to become America's first female black concert pianist. So in a way, her lapse, if you want, into jazz was a kind of a... Um, well she, well, she needed the money, basically. Well, she needed the money, yeah. but um, she went to Juilliard and then she, she tried to progress to online music school and she, she wasn't accepted. She always, always said that she wasn't accepted there on the, the grounds of, of race. Um, and for a while, she didn't really tell her family what had happened, that she hadn't got accepted to the school. And she took up a job in, uh, in Atlantic City in a bar called the Midtown Club in Atlantic City. And on her first night there, all she did was perform instrumental music. And the owner of the club said, you know, if you want to keep this job, you're going to have to sing. So she had sung in the church as a child. And then she was suddenly confronted with the idea that she'd have to sing uh, in a nightclub. So in a way, she, she arrived into the jazz world by, by accident because she wanted to go to Juilliard and become this great classical music player. It's interesting, last, I wasn't at the, the Wax On last month, but the subject was Miles Davis. And Miles Davis also went to Juilliard, but he kind of was much more cynical. <laughs> and he also came from a very middle-class family. His father was a dentist and a landowner. But he went to Juilliard pretty much because he wanted to be in New York and to meet all of his bebop jazz heroes. She was going to Juilliard because she wanted to actually succeed in classical music. Yeah, and Laura, I mean, at that stage, she would have been, if, if she had got her wish, she would have been the first black woman concert yeah. pianist in history, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's... Um, sorry, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. yeah, just speak English. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it, it is interesting. She talks about herself as, yeah, how she would have been this first uh, classical pianist, but 
Um, I guess, yeah, there were also people like uh, Mary Lou Williams, you know, who was another piano prodigy, actually, who had, you know, been playing with, like, Duke Ellington and stuff when she was only 12 and so on. But, yeah, Simone was so focused on the classical repertoire. Um, It's interesting because there's even, uh, you know, towards the end of her life, and she was remembering, I think there was a concert she played in Carnegie Hall in 1957, and... The interviewer said, oh, did you enjoy that? And she said, well, you know, I liked the audience being there, but she said but she said she found it kind of upsetting because she'd always imagined herself playing Bach in Carnegie Hall, and she felt that she was almost being, you know, uh, that this creative side of her had been kind of suppressed because she had to play jazz, and it wasn't her true, um, her true calling. So... Yeah, it's interesting. She does. She always had this vision of herself as how you know that she would be the first black female concert pianist. But it's funny because she also, in other interviews, she said, "Oh, you know that." Um, she said other African Americans didn't really accept black concert pianists, and she frequently spoke about. I forget the name of him now. It was um, this man, and she she made this point that he was um, he had one of his parents was. German or something like that, and she said for that reason he was never fully accepted. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. I think it's kind of it, it, it's almost a, a recurring theme then throughout mm-hmm. her career that she was never fully happy to be a, a, a jazz performer. She she did aspire to being a classical musician, and there's always this slight diffidence with her. And we'll we'll talk a little later on um, about. Uh, I mean, she certainly did have mental health issues and. Uh, We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later. But I think what's, what's, what's fascinating and amazing about that period when she was... So she, was, she, she adopted the name Nina Simone so that her mother wouldn't know that she was playing in a club. Um, in fact, the, the name Nina Simone, Nina in Spanish pronounced Nina, <coughs> means little girl, and that was a nickname mm. that her boyfriend gave to her. And Simone was taken from the French actress Simone Signore. So it, so. It, was, it, was thought, <coughs> it was thought to be uh, sophisticated. Yeah. sort of name and and it probably was and it probably did work for her um but w- the that period when she's singing in the midtown grill is when she develops this repertoire of tunes that she sang for most of her life and uh, we're going to have a listen to another one now that really is one of the songs most associated with her um it's from it's by Gershwin and it was from the the the, the opera Porgy and Bess and this is I love you Porgy Forever 
Beautiful song. Who else is who else is loving the static on the vinyl? <laughs> I just noticed the um, the inscription on that album is from Billy O'Hanlon in nineteen eighty nine. So I was eighteen when I bought that. So excuse the scratches. It's after thousands of plays of the album. <laughs> They're scars of noble scars oh, of battle. Scars. Yeah. Um, we, Laura, we were talking about this earlier on, and we were saying, I mean, so this was from Porgy and Bess, which is Gershwin's masterpiece opera. Uh, and it, it, but it was regarded with kind of some ambiguity by the black community. Um, it definitely was one of the first, you could argue, uh, positive dis- kind of depictions of, of black people in, in popular mm-hmm. American culture. But it wasn't entirely taken that way at the yeah. time, was it? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, Gershwin was such a controversial figure because, you know, he was this, like, he was the son of uh, Russian Jewish immigrants. So he was obviously not, um, you know, part of the African-American tradition and he was always considered 
Uh, maybe a bit unfairly, because he was doing what actually a lot of other musicians had done at the time as well. Uh, you, you know, he was accused of cultural appropriation, of going, oh yeah, I like the blues, I like the spirituals, I'm going to just uh, kind of like a magpie, take what I like from these traditions, I'm, you know, going to compose an opera, it's going to be my name that's up there. And the thing with Porgy and Bess is that um, a lot of African Americans felt conflicted about it because of how it portrays so many people in the community as kind of stealing and murdering and, you know, it's not exactly uh, a very positive depiction of African Americans. Um, so the thing is that I find it interesting that with people like Nina Simone and other people who um, covered uh, I Love You Porgy, you get these really strong uh, kind of um, black female singers who are actually remaking those songs and taking something that is kind of regarded with some suspicion and actually turning it into a much more positive statement. Uh, and so even now, like Porgy and Bess as an opera, for a long time it wasn't performed that much. And I think sometimes even when the opera is still performed, people are going, oh, well, you know, should, do we really want to see this on stage? Um, look at the whole story. There's all these problems with the characters. But these individual songs, like I Love You, Porgy, I mean, I think now when people hear them, they, they hear the voice of Nina Simone. They don't kind of hear this problem about, oh, here's Gershwin, this outsider trying to present yeah. uh, marginalized people in a kind of problematic way. So I think Nina Simone did something really positive with this kind of material. You know? Yeah, and um, I think it's a it's a brilliant example of the way Nina was able to take a song, and I mean, again, this is something that's said about a lot of people, but it's so true of Nina Simone that she could make the song her own and invest it with emotion. That I mean, as as Laura's saying, you know, we don't know how much direct experience Gershwin necessarily had of of uh, of. of life in a plantation in the American South. For in a black true person. diva fashion, Jamie and Nancy right. Barron arrives a few minutes late Ladies on the bus from Ron Jamie, Jamie and Nancy, Nancy Barron. <laughs> Sit down and take peace to yourself. Sarah. Sorry, I'm late. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, if anybody doesn't know Porgy and Bess, I mean, Porgy and Bess was a source of, of a lot of very famous songs in the jazz repertoire. I mean, most famously, Summertime is, is one of the songs from, from Porgy and Bess. So it was a real source. I mean, and Gershwin was a genius, and it was a real source of, of beautiful, beautiful songs. And I think, I think Porgy is, is definitely one of them. Um, Jamie, have you got any uh, insights into uh, Nina singing I Love You, Porgy? You've, so I should tell you, folks, J Jamie is uh, certainly one of our most original uh, jazz singers in, in Ireland. But uh, Jamie has made a particular study of Nina and performed her songs in New York. Uh, was it last year? Oh no, it was about three years. Three ago, years ago, yeah. Yeah. and uh, and he's he's writing a paper on. We're going to talk about Nina's uh, like protest songs later on, and uh, Jamie is writing a paper for his MA on Strange Fruit. So uh, we'll talk about that later on. But we're just talking about how she could really take a song and own it and make it her own. And is, oh, yeah. And is there, are you asking me a question? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it goes without saying. Her voice is... Uh, it, it didn't really matter how many people had sang the song. If you, if you turn on the radio and you heard Nina, you knew it was Nina. So I don't even know if it was a case of, of making it her own. It was just that it was... It was so her, you know, so um, there was no other voice that sounded like her when, when you turned it on. She's instantly recognizable. Yeah. 
Um, and instantly yeah. sort of riveting, instantly sort of Gripping. shivers down the spine kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to, uh, as I say, we're going to move on and talk about uh, her protest songs a little later on, but we just wanted to talk a little bit about her as a musician. As I was saying earlier on, I mean, mo most and, and like nearly all uh, black American women who, who got into music got in as a singer and they were expected to sing and the, 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 the music was kind of handled by the men in the band but that was not the way Nina rolled and she could really she could really play and we wanted to g give you an example of her playing and we thought actually that a piece of video that we found would be the nicest way to do that so we're going to have a look this is from the early 60s of uh, Nina playing um, Love Me or Leave Me I'd rather be lonely than happy with somebody else You might find the night time the right time for kissing Night time is my time for just for minutes and Regretting instead of forgetting with somebody else There'll be no one unless that someone is you I intend to be independently blue I want your love and I don't want to borrow Have it today to give When Nina, when Nina ended a song, it was definitely ended. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I think it, it, it should be pointed out, the band uh, are not visible there. 
uh, they must be behind the the curtain. But uh, you can hear Al Shackman, who was uh, her guitarist for years, uh, playing in the background there as well. Um, Laura, we were talking about this earlier on, and uh, like, describe to me the sort of the synthesis that's going on there musically. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, and I th I think the video was great because it actually we get a sense of you know, the, the kind of the physicality. And when Nina Simone is playing there at the piano, as you can see, it's nearly like her piano teacher is there kind of tapping her shoulder saying, sit up straight, you know, sit up straight and play and don't kind of move around. And um, there is a real sense of discipline to her playing. Uh, you know, when she start, when like the solo passage begins and she, you know, she starts off with the right hand playing the melody. And then soon afterwards, the left hand comes in, basically imitating the melody in the left hand. And to get a bit nerdy now, what we're getting into uh, is basically a, a kind of a jazzy sort of quasi two-part invention along the lines of, say, what Bach would have composed for the keyboard. And so then Nina Simone just sort of follows this logic through. She develops almost like a fugal uh, section in the middle of her jazzy, poppy piano tune. Um, so you're really getting a sense of, yeah, this uh, training classical technique, the Baroque repertoire, she had internalized it. I mean, she knew her Bach inside out. And the thing is then, even as she continues, you know, this it's a fairly long solo there. Um, and then even when she continues singing again, what she's doing at that point in that song is she's not just kind of vamping, not just playing chords, which she does in a lot of other songs, but you can hear she's got these scale passages going up and down. It's like you know, scales, hands together, third apart, you know, very, as I said, very, very technical, um, classical training is informing this song. Um, I, it's kind of funny, though, you know, one of the things you do hear, uh, like there's a couple of other songs when, again, they have these solo piano passages, and you can kind of sense, sometimes towards the end, she loosens up a little bit, there's a little bit of a kind of sense of swing, a little bit of syncopation there. Um, but I think it's funny, she found it very hard to switch off that kind of uh, classical, tr classical training. And, you know, she could every now, sometimes uh, when I'm here kind of accompanying herself, I think you can hear a little bit of the kind of maybe Count Basie sort of chordal vamping influence in her accompaniment. And uh, as you were saying as well before, Cormac, sometimes the way she plays, uh, she sounds a little bit like Thelonious Monk. It's a very sort of blunt style of playing. There's a lot of kind of percussive attack. She's not really too concerned about the sort of tone quality she, she's producing from the instrument. Um, so I guess there's a bit of jazz piano influence coming through the kind of the Thelonious Monk playing, but it, it's a fascinating kind of marriage of classical uh, and yeah. jazz. I, I, I think there's almost some, a kind of almost a defiance in the way she plays the piano of kind of look what I can do, don't, don't mess with me kind of thing, is the way that, uh, that Nina played the piano. Um, I was going to ask you though, Jamie, it, it, it's really interesting, not so many singers accompany themselves, and it's a huge thing to be able to do, isn't it, like to, that you control the harmony that's happening behind you as you sing? Well, the, I mean, my favourite singers accompany themselves, and on piano, really, you know. I mean, Elton John, Rufus Wainwright... Uh, Joni, I guess, Joni Mitchell. Um, so, I mean, it is. It's, I, I can't, I don't play. Uh, and, it, and even when I try, because I can play rudimentary piano or a little bit of guitar, but when I try and accompany myself, it's, I, it, I can't sing anymore, you know, because it's two separate things. It's two parts of your brain working. But, I mean, Nina's, I was, uh, you were saying there about a the little bit of jazz. You, I, it feels like, and you said she attacks, she's attacking, or she's defiant. She, it seems 
it's more like an, an up yours, isn't it? To, yeah. Like, look what you passed yeah. up. That's what she's always mm. trying to get across, I feel like, in every performance, you know? Mm. Yeah. She's mm. like, this is, this is, I'm great and you missed out, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's even the way, like, that, you know, in a lot of these performances, you see her, it's just her and the piano on stage. It's kind of, I, I mean, you know, she could be playing in a venue, like, in, you know, say, in Ireland, you know, like, in the National Concert Hall or something. Like, it's, she's not... The whole setup is not that of the kind of proper jazz world a lot of the time. Yeah. Does anybody else have any uh, observations about Nina as a as a musician, Sean? It has been said that, that she's quite remote in her performance, and I think it's due to the pull of the classical training because she really wants to be part of it. <coughs> yeah. A lot of jazz musicians who train classically are rebelling against that by playing jazz, but I don't think no one mm. is doing that, and I think that's probably part of of the issue. But she still gets great performances out and her interpretations of so many songs are incredible. But still she I think she's held back slightly perhaps by the classical bond that she has. I would argue though that in fact in exactly the same way with her singing that she kind of created her own genre that by melding these two styles together she created her own thing musically so this idea that she was switching one off and switching another on she actually created her own sound um, like within jazz piano it's often very celebrated somebody like Bill Evans introduced elements of French Impressionism, Debussy and those kind of elements in and perhaps they lend themselves better to kind of contemporary jazz than maybe Baroque does. But I think on that debut album, on that very first album, you see her talent at being able to turn pretty pedestrian material. I don't know which football club sings You'll Never Walk Alone. <laughs> Is it Liverpool? Liverpool. You're good, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> football's not my... <laughs> uh, but Any football fans in tonight? No. But she does an incredible version of that which is like a classical rhapsody then she does uh, her own uh, tune called Central Park Blues which is probably the closest she gets to kind of an Oscar Peterson style swinging thing and I concur with um, with both of you in that you mentioned her her slightly Thelonious Monk influences she can get so much out of one note mm. she can mm. like hit on the one note and make it create a great narrative and great tension out of that one note but there's one song on the um, very first album that's always kind of haunted me. The, it's called Plain Gold Ring. And it just has a very, very simple riff. All the way through. And then she builds up these crescendos. And it's almost, it's 1957. It's 10 years before The Doors. But it's exactly like The Doors. She had that menacing thing. And... So I think detracting from her that she didn't solve one problem, was she classical, was she jazz, it's a bit like the Sean O'Reilly argument, was he traditional, was he classical, that she furrowed a new kind of, uh, she plowed a new furrow, and, uh, was her own genre, in the same way that within her singing she's not really part of the pantheon of the jazz divas, like Sarah Vaughan, Billie Holiday, and you know, Ella Fitzgerald, in that she crossed into blues, soul, gospel, funk. She also kind of exposed herself emotionally in a way that none of those singers did. Most of them sort of sang either happy or sad songs from the great American songbook. But they didn't sort of... She can be quite intimidating as well. She's quite confrontational. In a way, she prefigures a lot of... It's no surprise that people like Nick Cave and Patti Smith and PJ Harvey also draw on her as an inspiration, you know? Well, I, th I think it, 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 it's, it's an interesting point that 
where uh, much of the popular music of the time was kind of expected to be happy or sad. They were either, you know, love songs or my whatever. But Nina Simone was one of the first real protest singers to start to sing about other things. And I think her great talent was to invest the material that she had, whether she wrote it herself or whether she appropriated it from other people, but to invest it with this sense of rage and indignation that, that comes through in the pieces. And almost from the beginning, that's the way she was. Um, like I said, I mean, she emerged fully formed as a, as a singer and as a musician, but also politically in her mind, she seems from the beginning to have, have known who she was and known what she wanted to say. Um, I think we want to move on now, and it, this is from the CD, uh, Ken, we'll play, uh, because it, we particularly wanted to, there's so many great protest songs that we could talk about tonight, and we're going we're gonna to kind of concentrate on two of them. Um, the, the ones that we're not playing, <laughs> I just wanted to name check a few of them uh, that are great and you should check out. She sang um, the I Wish I Knew How It Felt To Be Free, the great Billy Taylor song. And she sang that beautifully. She, the, there's The Four Women, which is this really powerful evocation of the lives of black, four different black women in, in American history. Um, you've got the old Jim Crow song about the Jim Crow laws and segregation in the South. And you've got To Be Young, Gifted and Black which was inspired by her great friend, um, Lorraine Hansberry, the, the, who was the first black playwright to have, uh, first black woman playwright to have a play produced on Broadway. Um, so she, and she picked up all those songs and it, she wasn't doing it for entertainment. This was definitely uh, passion and commitment and rage. But I think that the, the song that we want to hear now, and we're going to ask Jamie to talk about it after we've, we've listened to it, is, uh, w was first made famous by um, Billie Holiday. But I think when Nina takes it and brings it somewhere else, and it's chilling, really, the, the emotion that she puts into it. This is Strange Fruit. Southern trees Barren strange fruit Blood on the leaves And blood at the roots Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene of the gallant south. Them big bulging eyes. And the twisted mouth Scent of magnolia Clean and fresh Then the sudden smell Of burning 
bunch of fruit for the crows to pluck. For the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the storm to rot, for the leaves to drop. that song is, is one that needs a little moment of silence after it. Um, Jamie, um, could you, for those that don't know where this song comes from, can you kind of explain what the, the origins of the song are and what it's about? Well, it was written, it was actually written, uh, I think, uh, 40, 1941. Is that right? Um, it was written by a white Jewish man from upstate New York. He was a um, school teacher by day and by night he was a uh, very prominent, uh, very active member of the Communist Party um, and part of a bohemian kind of left wing uh, around the time of the Harlem, Harlem Renaissance. So he, was, he used to go to Cafe Society, the kind of interracial club or uh, non-segregated club, I guess, um, which was really unusual. But it was kind of hipster, I guess. That's what they were, the hipsters of the day, you know. Um, they were right on. Uh, he wrote the song after seeing a, 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 a photograph. I mean, by the time he wrote the song, lynching had slowed down. It wasn't as prevalent as it had been, but he wrote the song after seeing this postcard. There was a, uh, the names elude me now, but uh, there was a postcard, a very famous image of two young black boys that were hung, hanged um, uh, in Mississippi or uh, Alabama. Um, and he, I'm so vague now, sorry, I'm under pressure. Um, he saw this postcard, it was, it, it was almost like, you've probably seen it, it's, it's notorious. Um, it was like a, a day at the fair, there was families there with their kids and people smiling for the cameras, but in the background there was this like, uh, horrific scene. Um, he saw it and wrote the song about it. And there's a lot of uh, myth around how Billie Holiday came to, came to be presented with it. There's a lot of myth about her understanding of the song and her reticence about singing it. Um, but eventually it became her song. Every, I mean, it, however she got it or whatever happened, it's synonymous with Billie Holiday, really. Um, for me, Nina's version is the definitive version, though. 
Billy's Billy's version is is really poignant. It's really touching. It's of the time it, when this was happening, and I know Nina's is more in direct um, reference to the civil rights movement of the sixties. But Nina's Nina's anger is so present in that song, you know, and she's um, and all the shit she put up with from when she was three years old. Crossing the, the 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 train tracks into the white side of town to go to piano lessons to getting turned down by the conservatory because she was black like she that was the thing that she com- combated against her entire life I I feel she never got over that and and that's this when she sang this song to me it was like all of those things coming out her anger is so so palpable but then at the end of the song it's almost like she's resigned or or kind of just going like I can't believe we're still singing this song you know that's that's my take on it anyway Laura we were talking earlier on about like I mean Nina like she definitely thought that being a a a singer of popular songs was was less than uh, her full uh, mission in life and she thought that an artist's job was to reflect the times, and, and she felt that very strongly. And I think she shares that with, with some other jazz musicians of the time. You were saying that you found parallels with Mingus. Yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting to yeah compare her with somebody like Mingus, because, you know, Mingus also... So ba- bassist Charles Mingus is who yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, like, I mean, it's funny because, as we were saying, he's somebody who has a, also had a reputation for being a little bit prone to anger, you know. Um, but if you think about... Uh, like Mingus, and was it 1959? He recorded with his band uh, a track called "The Fabulous Fables," um, and it was an instrumental track. But himself and his drummer Danny were kind of talking over it. You know, they were. Um, it was a response to this um, governor of Arkansas who was opposed to desegregation and had tried to prevent uh, African American children from enrolling in a school. And anyway, on that track, um, Mingus is really angry and he says, you know, you're like uh, white supremacists, it's the KKK, you know, you're just um, so full of hate. And his record company refused to release the uh, Faubus Fables as it was at first. Um, And it was a couple of years before that original version with the spoken part was released. Um, So it's interesting, that kind of anger that comes through in the Faubus Fables, it's the same thing that we hear, especially in something like Mississippi Goddamn, which, uh, okay, so the, you know, that managed to get a release. It wasn't censored by the record companies, but then a lot of radio stations refused to play Mississippi Goddamn. And this, actually, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This was boycotted by a lot of the radio yeah. stations. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and then so there's yeah there's that kind of uh, I think Simone has that in common with Mingus that she is angry and you know the ang- like rightly so about the political situation. Um, I suppose it's funny though you could maybe also compare her to somebody like Coltrane. Uh, you know, if we're talking about Mississippi Goddamn, composed as a you know in response to the KKK bombing the church in Birmingham oh, okay. and Alabama. We're going to talk about that after. Yeah. The break. Okay. Yeah, so. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. But. Uh, I, it, yes, ju- we're going to take a little break now um, just to get everybody a chance to uh, load up uh, or whatever it Loosen is. Loosen up want, a bit. Whatever know? it is you want to do in the break. <laughs> you but want maybe while we, while we break, we could play the, um, the Brown Baby song. Um, so, yeah, we're going to take a short break, but we're going to play uh, another protest song from, from that, that first album, Brown Baby. So, uh, yeah, 10 minutes and we come back with some more. <laughs> 
Thanks, everyone.
we'll try and call this meeting to order. Although it's a beautiful sound to hear everybody starting to talk about to, to each other about this music, and I think that's what we hope to to uh, encourage with wax on is that uh, this music is 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 something that uh, grows on you when you learn about it, and uh, hopefully we can uh, contribute something to that. What we want to do in the second half is uh, particularly talk about. Uh, her protest songs and her her role in the civil rights movement in uh, in in America, because she's not just a singer that like like many singers then and now who will dip in and out of a cause, and and record a record or anything like that. As the the sixties went on, Nina saw it as far more important for her that she be part of the the uh, the civil rights movement than that she be a singer and. I think um, what, what, what we'd like to do is try and uh, sort of bring us back to that moment. The, the song we're going to talk about is Mississippi Goddamn, which is very important for lots of reasons. Actually, as a musician, I've always really loved just the, the, the rhythm of it is brilliant and the way she, she sings it is fantastic. But the context is, 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 is very important to understanding. And I thought what we would look at first is, so that it was... Um, June 1963, and, and it's the height of the, f the fight against segregation. And uh, that night, I think it was the 12th of June, the 11th of June, President Kennedy gave an address to the nation. And, and this was just after uh, two, two students had been refused admission to, to um, college in, in, in Mississippi. And uh, so Kennedy gave an address to the nation, and we have a little clip of that, that uh, address, and I thought we'd just just to get us back into the times, we'd have a look at some of that. So you can roll it there, Colette. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This afternoon, following a series of threats and defiant statements, the presence of Alabama National Guardsmen was required on the University of Alabama to carry out the final and unequivocal order of the United States District Court of the Northern District of Alabama. That order called for the admission of two clearly qualified young Alabama residents who happened to have been born Negro. That they were admitted peacefully on the campus is due in good measure to the conduct of the students at the University of Alabama who met uh, their responsibilities in a uh, constructive way. I hope that every American, regardless of where he lives, will stop and examine his conscience about this and other related incidents this nation was founded by men of many nations and backgrounds. It was founded on the principle that all men are created equal and that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. Today we are committed to a worldwide struggle to promote and protect the rights of all who wish to be free. And when Americans are sent to Vietnam or West Berlin we do not ask for whites only. It ought to be possible, therefore, for American students of any color to attend any public institution they select without having to be backed up by troops. It ought to be possible for American consumers of any color to receive equal service in places of public accommodation, such as hotels and restaurants and theaters and retail stores without being forced to resort to demonstrations in the street. 
and it ought to be possible for American citizens of any color to register and to vote in a free election without interference or fear of reprisal. It ought to be possible, in short, for every American to enjoy the privileges of being American without regard to his race or his color. In short, every American ought to have the right to be treated as he would wish to be treated, as one would wish uh, his children to be treated. But this is not the case. The Negro baby born in America today, regardless of the section of the state in which he is born, has about one half as much chance of completing a high school as a white baby, born in the same place on the same day. One third as much chance of completing college. One third as much chance of becoming a professional man. Twice as much chance of becoming unemployed. So the, 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 sp the speech goes on, we're not gonna watch it all, but I just thought it was important and interesting to kind of get ourselves back into that mindset because what happened was the very next night that that speech went out, um, one of the leaders of the civil rights movement, Medgar Evers, was shot in Mississippi. And there was huge shock in the civil rights movement. And Nina, the next night, she says, sat down and wrote this song that we're, that we're gonna hear now. So let's have a listen to Mississippi Goddamn. The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air I can't stand the pressure much longer Somebody say a prayer Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about me show tune but the show hasn't been written for it yet hound dogs on my trail school children sitting in jail black cat cross my path I think every day is gonna be my last mercy on this land of mine we all gonna get it in due time i don't belong here i don't belong there i've even stopped believing in prayer don't tell me i'll tell you me and my people just about do i've been there so i know keep on saying go slow but that's just the trouble washing the windows picking the 
They try to say it's a communist plot All I want is equality For my sister, my brother, my people and me Yes, you lied to me all these years You told me to wash and clean my ears And talk real fine just like a lady And you'd stop calling me Sister Sadie That's that's Mississippi Goddamn. I th- I think it's it's interesting to note. I mean, we're talking about 1963 protest mm-hmm. songs. By the le- the late 60s, everyone was doing protest songs, but that really is one of the first times that a uh, that somebody like in, in Nina Simone's situation got up and really made that kind of statement about uh, race and. It, it, about it, social injustice in America. And I, actually, what I wanted to ask um, Laura d- to talk about as well was that, I mean, Nina as, as, a, as a woman represented something that hadn't been seen before in, in American life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's probably part of what people perceived as the threat behind this music as well. You know, she is... Uh, God, was the epitome of that stereotype of the angry black woman with good reason, you know. Um, as we were saying, like this song, it was censored by a lot of radio stations. They just wouldn't play it. Um, it's Yeah, it's kind of hard to know where to start because, like, uh, I guess the politics in this, it's kind of, it's driven by almost like a kind of a black separatist sentiment in some ways in the lyrics, but there's also that feeling of, yeah, that the fact that, um, she is a woman and she's really militant. And a couple of critics kind of, uh, you know, at the time they wouldn't say it directly, but there was a feeling that people 
thought, okay, it's not actually the lyrics that are shocking, it's the fact that it's a black female entertainer who is taking this idea and making it part of her act. I mean, people would kind of say if somebody like Leroy Jones, uh, you know, um, had written about this or, you know, if one of the other kind of recognised black intellectuals of the period had talked about it, that this would be okay. Um, but here you've got Nina Simone saying things like, you know, uh, we're all going to die, we're going to die like flies, and even saying things like, just, you don't have to live next to me, just give me my equality. Like, yeah. And you can even hear in the song, like it's just dripping with sarcasm, things like, you know, these lines of just kind of wait and be patient, and then you've got her band members in the background shouting too slow, yeah. and then she talks about, oh, you know, we'll just be there picking the cotton, even the way she says it, she's like... We're not going to do this anymore, you know. Yeah. But and Jamie, I think it, as well, it it's funny the way it jars with the sentiment that it's such a jaunty sort of track. It's kind of upbeat and, and and jaunty track, and what she's saying is completely at odds with that. And when I heard it first, I did like without taking in what she was singing. Just heard it, I guess. I don't know when I was a uh, young uh, teenager or whatever. I never thought it was a an angry song. But it's a call to arms, really, isn't it? I mean, she was she was pro black power and pro violence. She didn't she she was the op on the opposite side of Dr. King, you know, um, and that was her. The, and and I mean, I don't know if the if it, I mean, obviously, you know, the, I, I, it, what I've read is that she came into the house and tried to build a gun in the garage, yeah, yeah, yeah. and her husband stopped her and said, "You can't, you don't know how to use build a gun." you know, use, use your songs, use your gifts as, as a weapon. And so she wrote that song, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, that's very present in this. Yeah, I mean, when, when she says we don't have to live next door to each other, what she was talking about was, to, what she favoured was a, an armed revolt to set up a separate black state mm. in America. That's what Nina was interested in. So it wasn't, uh, it, no, it wasn't uh, Dr. <laughs> King at all. But sometimes it seems like the world hasn't changed at all in America. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that for years it's looked like that there was going to be a civil, a revel, another civil war. You know, sometimes it looks like it could be the only way. To, you know. Yeah. To me, it's uh, it's interesting that an awful lot of the most famous jazz history books happen to be written by white people, and a lot of the most famous jazz critics are also white. Like going back to people like Leonard Feather and Nat Hentoff. Mm. Um, I being a a, jazz, a sad jazz buff. I have tons of jazz history books at home. But it's very interesting if you read jazz history books, there's a narrative that it starts in New Orleans, it migrates to Chicago, you've got the big band period, you've bebop, hard bop, and then there's the thorny issue of the 60s. And nearly all the jazz books kind of jazz lost its way in the 60s, became very political, and we now we move on to the 80s. And it doesn't want to engage with probably, which to me is a period that needs a kind of a uh, a certain amount of revisionism that actually maybe one of the golden ages in Afro-American culture was from the mid-60s until the mid-70s when you had a phenomenal range of music happening both within funk, within early, early rap, by that I mean people like The Last Poets and that, and what Nina Simone was doing. But also you had smaller independent labels like Impulse who were you know, recording music by people like Archie Shep and Pharaoh Saunders, and they were full of fury. And, and they were also exploring their own African roots. And once that became too radical, the sort of the white critics couldn't really deal with that. And because, you know, even white liberals kind of who supported jazz and Afro-American rights, they liked it up to a certain point, but don't push it too hard. 
we like it, you know, if it's kind of nice and if it's kind of, you know, if, it, if it's a good soundtrack to our dinner party, our mm. Democratic Party dinner party, you know. <laughs> but don't push too hard because we don't... So Nina at this stage is dressed out in full African regalia. They're actually rediscovering their own African roots and that becomes difficult for for a lot of people. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because I was there was one thing that I wanted to touch on tonight as well, which was this question of what Nina looked like. Um, you know, the, the previous uh, divas, uh, jazz singers, had, had kind of been required, I'm talking about Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan and people like that, had kind of been required by the industry that they were in to conform to a kind of European ideal of what a woman should look like. And they wore, you know, ball gowns and they, they straightened their hair and all of this. And Nina Simone was really the first to stand up and say, well, I'm a beautiful black woman and I've got an afro. And as she, as she uh, went on in her career, that became a kind of more strident part of her personality. But, I mean, w w Laura, from your perspective with the waking the feminists and stuff like that, <laughs> how important is Nina Simone as a, as a role model for the women that came after her? Uh, yeah, I, I think she's fascinating. And I think her gender politics were definitely at the heart of a lot of the music she did. Um, I suppose now when we talk about um, certainly Nina Simone, there's a lot of um, feminist ideology, I think, in her music. Probably today, uh, you, you know, um, critics would talk about her maybe as a kind of um, a figure who embodies this idea of intersectionality that you can't just talk about, say, feminism or race with Nina Simone. She's a black woman and you've got to talk about both facets of her identity. Um, I think, again, to go back to a song you already mentioned, Cormac, which was uh, For Women, I think that's a great example of a, a track she wrote where she talks about four women who are, you know, they've got African-American her uh, heritage and she says... I mean, she's really upfront in kind of talking about what they have suffered. Like, there's lines here like, I'm strong enough to take the pain inflicted again and again. And my father was rich and white. He forced my mother late at night. And then, you know, whose little girl am I? Anyone who's got the money to buy. And then there's the part where she really identifies with the last woman. And she says, you know, my skin is brown. My manner is tough. Um, I'll kill the first mother I see. You know, my life has been rough. And, yeah, she's really kind of upfront about what she's suffered. Um, but at the same time then, y you could take this, oh, God, there's all this suffering here. But she doesn't play the victim. She, as we've seen, she gets up there. She is uh, unapologetic about who she is, about how she wants to look, about how she carries herself, you know. Um, so she's certainly, I think, a role model for, yeah, like, well, I guess black female musicians, but I suppose... Yeah, all kinds of um, anybody interested in feminist politics and, you know, feminist artists and so on. I guess the other thing to say about Nina Simone is that I think with her, we see a kind of continuation of this tradition that goes back to the 1920s to these black female blues singers, to people like Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey, uh, you know, Ethel Waters, who were writing and singing really autobiographical stuff where they were talking about their men kind of cheating on them, running off with their money, kind of being pimped out. So a lot of these really brutal realities about the oppression that only kind of black women in the States were suffering. Nina Simone uh, is coming at things from that perspective, obviously updated to where things are at in the 1960s. Yeah. So, um, But I, I think as well in terms of the influence that she had 
after her. Yeah. In yeah. terms of, I mean, I remember, I, uh, many of you will know the, the, the Fuji song, Ready or Not, and, there's a, the, and she name-checks Nina mm. Simone as the inspiration. While you guys are all off prettying yourselves and singing about love and stuff like that, I'm going to be Nina Simone. Is what Lauren Hill was saying, and I think that's a hugely. I remember feeling a kind of shiver in my spine when I heard that first. The sort of the sense of of uh, empowerment that Lauren Hill had felt from from somebody like Nina Simone, and I think there are. Sorry, Jamie. No, yeah. She, yeah, no. She said, didn't she say that Nina Simone showed her that it was possible for a woman to do to do something not? Oh, sorry. She Lauren Hill. Uh, I just read that she she said Nina Simone basically opened the door for her. When she heard her as a teenager, she was like, oh, I don't have to do this. I don't have to be that, I don't have to be that type of person. I can do whatever the hell I want. So yeah, exactly what you're saying. Sorry. Yes, and, and, and that the, the, the inspiration was, it wasn't just musical. It was, it was kind of, it, it was this emotional support for, for, and particularly for black women, I think, in, in America, to, to, to aspire to, 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 to have a voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. What were you going to say, Billy? Well, I was going to say that, again, this, this kind of marks her out again as being very, very different from previous jazz divas, in particular with, with her relating with her times, because on a lot of the albums around the 60s, she covers songs by Bob Dylan, Randy Newman, Leonard Cohen, The Beatles, The Birds. She has a social and political engagement which marks her out completely different from from you know the, the 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 classic jazz singers we've mentioned before but again the the, the whole notion that once afro-american culture kind of crossed over a certain boundary in other words it started to you know reinvestigate its own african roots and that an awful lot of people white liberals and all that became very very nervous around that in the same way that kennedy rightly supported martin luther king but everyone was very nervous around malcolm x <laughs> and because of you know, the, the absolute all or nothing demand there. And um, Simone is very much more in that radical camp, I mm -hmm. think, than the, than the softer approach, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's funny, though, because, yeah, because there, there is that very um, strong side to her, I think, you know, which she is really angry and very uh, upfront about that. But it is, I guess it's quite moving then, you know, when Martin Luther King was shot, she wrote that song called Why the King of Love is Dead, you know? And it, it's just like, it, it's so much softer. It's almost like you can really, it seems very personal. Like you can really kind of hear the grief. It's nearly like kind of a eulogy for him. Well, listen, before, before we move off, because I think, we, I think we should have a listen to four women. Um, this is the song that Laura was talking about earlier on. Um, and a, 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 this just amazing evocation of the, the, the lives of four women in, in, in American history, four black women in American history. And the sort of the, I, I guess you could call it the social progress that, that it describes. So uh, this is for women. My skin is black. My arms are long. is woolly my back is strong strong enough to take the pain inflicted again and again 
what do they call me? My name is Aunt Sarah. yellow My hair is long Between two worlds I do belong My father was rich and white He forced my mother late one night What do they call me? My name is Sophronia. My name is Sophronia. Peaches is what she called herself, so you, the, the, the last verse is clearly her, and you can see, you can hear the change in her voice. I think that's almost like a rap song, you know, uh, in terms of, like, it's a, it's a groove, and it's, a, it's just a beat, and it's a spoken word kind of thing happening yeah, yeah. over it. Um, 
J- Jamie, when you go to sing Nina's songs, how do you approach them in terms of do you do you try to uh, like reinterpret it yourself? Do you take something from Nina? How do you approach songs that she's made so much her own? <laughs> Never told me that was gonna be a trick question. Um, um, I approach songs that I love. So uh, you know, uh, somebody like somebody could suggest a song to me, and I find it very difficult to sing it unless I already have a relationship with it, an emotional, or it resonates with me somehow. Funnily enough, "Plain Gold Ring" was a song that I wasn't really completely familiar with until Billy suggested it, and and now I absolutely it's one of my favourites. Probably because of my relationship with Billy, you know. No, but truthfully, that's 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 how it works for me. I I attach certain things to certain songs. All of the songs, obviously, Nina's template is there, and that's what I work off. But then they just, I mean, I I presume. I mean, I feel like when I when they start, they're closer to how she sang them and how and how how they were presented. But they evolve as you go along. The more you sing them, the more they become your own. And they become less consciously based on that thing, on that on that template. But I, I have to, yeah. I mean, I have to obviously. I can't sing a song unless I understand what it's about and what and what she was trying to say. You know, it's it's funny because I was thinking about the, the this period in the in the movies was when people were talking about the method and and that actors would kind of emote and and live in the moment. And I think that's what's going on with Nina Simone. Now, she didn't have to kind of, you know, call on any emotional memories. What was happening in these songs is absolutely present with her right in the moment. And I think that's what's, what's so chilling about them. And what really touches you is that you can, t- like, it's, a, it's not that she's acting a part or, or recalling some other trauma. She's in it right now. And it's, it's very present. Um, every, sorry, I was just every, sorry. Oh, oh no! Every time, every time she sings those songs, they're they're different. Every time she delivers them, and they're and she's right there. You know, that's the that's the yeah. artistry in what she was doing, really. No, I was just going to say again, going back to that very first album when she's only twenty four, but th- th- there's that level of emotional give. I was while preparing for it, I was thinking about other great debut albums, and I was thinking of Tom Waits's debut album closing time didn't think we'd get through it and I would hear Tom, Tom Waits, Waits reference. well yeah. nearly, my voice is nearly as deep as Tom Waits but <laughs> but um, on that album it's interesting Waits kind of he wrote that great song Martha and he's 24 around the same age in his book, but he's pretending to be 60 odd years old but Nina Simone sounds already like she's lived way more life Tom Waits is a great actor I'm a huge fan, but I've had to revise my opinion on him slightly. He acts these great roles, but she's actually living the thing. And I mean, I when doing the maths on the thing yesterday, realizing that she invested that amount of emotional depth at that age of 24, it's almost like Joyce reaching, you know, the the heights of the dead at age 25. You kind of wonder where do you go from there, you know? Um, Laura, from your study of, of like women in, in, in 20th century music, where does Nina Simone stand in terms of like, what is that that she brings to, to, to the cause, if you like? Uh, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a big, a big kind of question. Um, I suppose one of the things about Nina Simone, and maybe I think maybe it's something that's kind of come up as well earlier, is that she's just so difficult to categorize, you know? 
um, even a, among like say great female performers, like as you said, Billy, she doesn't fit the mold of the typical jazz diva. And then yet, if you look at other kind of popular, even other protest singers of the 60s, she is just, um, there's something about her musical background and training where she always seems to hold herself kind of a little bit kind of aloof um, from other musicians sometimes and from her audience. So she can be quite, she's sort of difficult to categorize. Um, but I suppose, yeah, one of the things th that I always come back to anyway, I don't know if other people feel the same, but she seems very in touch with what's happening kind of, uh, like I say, you know, the sort of intellectual currents that are going on with, like you're talking about the rediscovery of African roots and so on. Um, and there is this sense in her music, she's using her music as its political commentary, its critique, um, even something like, you know, to be young, gifted and black, where she's referring to her, you know, her recently deceased um, playwright friend, Lorraine Hansberry, um, uh, kind of tapping into her work. Uh, but there's, yeah, I, I don't know, there's something about Nina Simone and that she herself would bring up in interviews. Uh, like there's an interview from, you know, a few years before she died and this uh, interviewer says to her, you know, oh, your music kind of seems to come from a very angry perspective. And she's <laughs> not exactly angry when she corrects him, but she's like, no, um, my music is not coming from an angry perspective. It's meant to be an intelligent kind of commentary on something. And I think that, yeah, sometimes it's easy to forget, maybe, again, going back to what you're saying, that white liberals could enjoy jazz up to a point, but then they found, okay, ooh, it's getting a bit too close to the bone here, let's try and disregard it, or let's just write it off as angry. Um, and in doing so, there's actually this risk of kind of overlooking all the kind of intellectual, the critique, the stuff that actually everybody needs to be listening to um, that's going on in the music. So for me, I think she's important in that sense that there, she is uncompromising. She has these um, points that you know she wants to communicate in her music. She wants to reach an audience who's out there who are reading um, the kind of political you know treatises and stuff of the day. Uh, so she's, I guess, in a way, she's even kind of going over the heads of the kind of mainstream pop audience that people might think she's supposed to be reaching. Yeah, and and I think like she's a very important sort of like one of the first kind of positive female role models that was, I mean, and I'm thinking of that, that I mean, Joan Baez is, is around the same time and Joan Baez was kind of starting to claim that kind of space for women. And I am conscious that we're sitting up here, three men and, and one woman, and I do apologize for that. There's nothing I can do about my gender except uh, try and make amends. But, uh, you know, that, that uh, Joan Baez and then Joni Mitchell and people like that. And Nina Simone really blazes their tra the trail for them and she's really the first one and t the fact that she did it not only as a woman but as as a black person yeah yeah is is a huge kind of achievement um and the fact that i mean uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna play we're gonna play one of the hits now so um don't don't anybody worry but uh well uh interestingly you know um this this song that now uh, that I, I was reading that it was the most played record on British television in 2010. There's hardly a person in these islands that didn't hear this a hundred times uh, in the time that it, because it was it was it was in an ad for a yogurt. And um, for me, part of what tonight has been about has been reclaiming 
Nina Simone from that kind of ersatz version of her that emerged through uh, popular culture and she's been endlessly plundered, particularly by advertisers. Um, so this song that we're going to hear um, was a hit for her in 1968 and it's actually, it, it was two songs that she made a medley out of from uh, the musical Hair and uh, it doesn't need any um, introduction. You all know it very well, so roll it there, Colette.
Yeah, Nina. Uh, I think it's a travesty that that was taken for a, a yogurt commercial. And uh, d- does anybody here work in advertising? <laughs> um, um, what do you what do you call the American uh, comedian? What's he? What, what's your man's name? Oh, Bill. Bill Hicks yeah, used Bill to stand Hicks. up. Anybody here work in advertising? Somebody put yeah. up their hand. Kill yourself. No, I'm, no, I'm not kidding. Kid yourself. No, really, kill yourself. Um, so, it, like I said, I think uh, tonight was partly about reclaiming Nina from that kind of uh, commercialism. Does anybody have any questions or any observations that they would like to share with the room, or any questions they'd like to ask? Yeah. So she was. She, she, she was, was later in life um, diagnosed with what would nowadays be called uh, bipolar, or which was probably called manic depression. And on that point, there is a there is a famous concert of hers from the Montreux Jazz Festival. If you put it on YouTube, you'll find it. It's 1974, and. It makes for slightly disturbing viewing because we are talking tonight about how amazing she is in terms of revealing all of her raw emotion and that. But if you watch also the Netflix documentary about her, she was very cruel to her own daughter. So while we're celebrating her, and same with the guy who was talked about last month, Miles Davis, these are very troubled people as well, you know? So we have to be careful not to over-glamorize. But um, I was watching the Montreux gig the other night again on YouTube and she steps out onto the stage and she takes a bow in front of the piano and she stares at the audience for a a really painful nearly one minute of silence and she's snarling at them and then she sits but you're wondering like am I watching a kind of I know she's a genius she's going to but it it makes for discomforting viewing you know and that I mean it shows the extent to which she gave of herself, but the daughter says something very interesting uh, in the Netflix documentary that, you know, Nina Simone was the greatest performer on stage when she performed, but the problem was that she was Nina Simone all the time. It's a bit like Lauren Bacall had a great quote about her husband, Humphrey Bogart, and it was that after three whiskeys, Humphrey Bogart became Humphrey Bogart. In other words, he became that guy you saw on the screen, and that living with that was hell. So. I know we've been saying many wonderful things about it, but there is that very awkward side as well, you know. Any, any other questions or comments? Well, she was obviously on the edge the whole time. She was. A revolutionary thing, the whole thing, and that probably led to the well, use of her daughter. Well, here's a funny story. I, now, Billy saw her a couple of times, but I saw her in The Point. Um, I guess that was... 1999. 99. And uh, it was just around the time of the Good Friday Agreement. And there was a celebratory kind of atmosphere in Ireland that we had finally so, sort of made peace in the North. But Nina hadn't, Nina hadn't been fully briefed on this subject. <laughs> and she, she came out and, uh, and she was so right on because she was a revolutionary and she'd obviously d- read enough and figured out enough about what to say in Ireland. And she said, she, she, she had a wand that night. Remember, she had a... She had a wand that she would walk out to the front of the stage and kind of wave it at us. I don't know whether we were being blessed or cursed, but (laughs) but, uh, anyway, but at one point she stood up and she said, you've been fighting for your freedom for 800 years. Keep fighting. (laughs) And everyone in the the back is going, no, no, Nina, no, no. We're friends now. It's fine. (laughs) So uh, that was Nina's moment. But I, I remember at the time really appreciating that that she was a revolutionary and that that's what she wanted to express, you know. Anyone else? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 
Yes. Yeah. Which I thought was so powerful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So radical mm. and so true all at the same time. And today, so radical. Mm. Yeah. 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 I mean, can you imagine any perfume company using it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't watch the space. I mean, they, well, I think they for, took I Got Life you for, know, a lot for, yogurt. For, for a lot of performers and artists from this period. What happened almost from the mid-70s onwards, that suddenly this great radical period of, of jazz and funk and soul that kind of started in the early 60s and continued on to the mid-70s, it descended into kind of um, a pretty... Nil I love disco music, don't get me wrong, I like dancing. But it kind of descended into a Mayfain kind of disco, I'm okay, that an awful lot of the optimism and idealism disappeared completely. And if you read interviews with the likes of Curtis Mayfield and, and Nina later, they were so appalled by actually the direction that black culture took, or better said, maybe was taken also by, by you know, white-led record labels. And so you had this kind of booty culture. And if you compare... Rihanna and Beyonce. Beyonce's last album was pretty good, but if you, if you, <laughs> sorry, I'm, right, there's an admission. No, but in, in terms thin of ice, even thin where ice. like kind of gangster rap and stuff has gone, like it's so far removed from the the collective notion of a community working together for social change. It's all about individual gratification. It's all mm -hmm. about you know I got my my car, my dosh, my dope, my car, my house, my my crib, mm -hmm. you know, and it's it's and actually. If you speak to most Afro-Americans in their 60s, 70s, they're actually unbelievably appalled where their own revolutionary thing... And the, the, the notion that somehow Obama was the end of that journey is very disappointing to a lot of Afro-Americans because yeah. Obama wasn't really what they were looking for, you know? Yeah. But, it was very monumental in, in itself, but it was very d disappointing. You yeah, know? yeah. No, I was just going to say as well, yeah, what you were saying, yeah, this feeling of disappointment. You know, Nina Simone herself, like, she left the States for good pretty much, was in 72 or something, and she just said, you know, after uh, Martin Luther King had been shot, like, she felt that was it. You know, yeah. she lived in, she lived in Liberia for a while, and then she was, I think, mostly in France, but, you know, she... She said she went back to the States a couple of times for visits, but she felt like she really um, idealized what had happened, of course, with Nelson Mandela. She said, you know, he was what uh, America needed and they never got, you know. Um, so, yeah, she felt she seemed to be really disgusted by what had happened after the 60s. Like you said, this sense of the collective doesn't matter anymore now. It's just, you know, like, I'm all right, Jack. And, and that a lot of, would say, in the last 10 years, the kind of current gangster rap kind of thing are the way that a lot of female Afro-Americans present, but the Rihanna kind of, the soft porn kind of image, that in a way they've played back into the white man's expectation of either the guys being gangsters and the girls being hookers. And there was so much done to try and change that in the, in the 60s and early 70s and that it's, it's fallen back into that awful... But that's, that's happened with, in white culture too, white music culture in the States. Yeah. Women are sexualized, oh, yeah. men are studs. That's how it's portrayed. I, th like. I think it's also fair to say that uh, what we're talking about is mainstream commercial culture and there still is sure, protest yeah. work out there. You just, you kind of have to go looking yeah. for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just, oh, just so want to see what else more, yeah. is in the room. What other, uh, does anyone else have anything they want to want to say or it breaks my heart that she wanted to do classical and she never got to do that but at the same time like we wouldn't have had 
or she wouldn't have been able to have that voice. Well, I don't think she would have been able to have that voice if she had gone into classical music. So, well, it does break my heart. It's kind of like it's good for. It's it's almost because. Yeah, it's almost because she didn't get into classical music that yeah. she was so angry yeah. and she w for the rest of her life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, yeah. So did, she ever, did she ever realize when she became? Famous, did she ever, at that stage, say, "Well, look, okay, classical music is my first choice, but I'm really successful at this." I think it's I think it's kind of hard to say exactly what Nina Simone thought about herself. Well, when she was when she played in Carnegie Hall, she wrote to her parents and said. I made it to Carnegie Hall, but I'm playing jazz. Yeah. Yeah. It was always you ambiguous. Know, so it was an always but, a sort of... But also yeah. her... Uh, I mean, she, she was really dissatisfied with everything. With her, I mean, with her career. <laughs> Sorry. But up to a point... Like, she hated her audiences. She hated uh, the music she was playing. She, she was like, yeah. I'm playing this crap music for these people that haven't got a clue. I should be playing Beethoven. Beethoven was her favorite. She wanted to be playing classical. She never got to do that properly, but she did change the face of, of yeah. contemporary music. I mean, I know a, a ream of piano players that, play, that are classical players that love to play jazz, and it's all integral or in, integrated now. But she, um, she had a realization when she, because she was so angry, about not being able to play classical, but then when she started playing, playing so protest songs, she was able to go, oh shit, this all happened for this reason. So she did have a moment of clarity and satisfaction, I, I, I think, anyway, it seems like. Yeah. I was hoping that I was thinking that she wouldn't have been able to yeah. kind of have that voice if she had gone yeah. to classical, so hopefully she was Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I kind of think, you know, it would have been... It's, it's really hard to imagine her anyway, having had this career where she would just get up there and play kind of all of these dead white men, you know, which, I mean, the classical repertoire, you know, I won't go off on one now, but, you know, as a musicologist, we've, like, one of the things we kind of fight against is that this idea of classical music has, for you know, for so long been dominated by the idea that it was only ever white European men, you know, who wrote classical music, and... You kind of think, yeah, I mean, would she have just kind of reproduced this sort of uh, patriarchal, canonic idea of classical music? Or maybe would she, you never know, maybe she would have gone off and actually discovered some of the black composers who were out there, like William um, Grant Still and even Florence Price, you know, these uh, black composers who were active in the 1920s and 30s and kind of uh, totally overlooked. You know, maybe she would have actually... <coughs> Uh, develop the idea of black classical music, but it's hard to know. But even That's now, sorry. So, oh, sorry, Billy. But, um, even now, I mean, I, I heard I listened to a, a podcast on BBC about 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 Nina, and they were saying they were they asked the the the, the, the person who was who uh, an interviewer or some or uh, academic about it uh, about her getting over the fact that she didn't get into the conservatory. And and if things had changed now, or if that if if she presented now, would she get in? And they and they said, well, can you name one non-Caucasian, like or African American or um, black violinist or classical pianist in famous, you know? So that it, you know things haven't really progressed. Yeah, you know? I think I think it's also worth saying that I mean this is something we in jazz, if I can use that phrase, that often say about our our music that. Jazz is the kind of is the new is the new art music because it chimes with the kind of 
egalitarian sense that we have of ourselves nowadays. Classical music prioritizes a composer, a, a, a sort of a controller, and the musicians are, are kind of worker bees delivering their vision. Whereas what we love about jazz is that jazz is, a, is the musicians in the moment expressing themselves. And I think that is something that Nina would have connected with as an idea of herself as a musician. And this is what I was saying earlier on. And my strongest sense of her is that she was fully present when she was performing and fully engaged in the music the meaning of the music and the feeling of the music and the emotion of the music. And that's what we feel now. Even now, 50 years later, we can s listen to these records or see these videos and feel that incredible ability to connect with other people that she had. And uh, we're, we're kind of we're out of time. If there's any, does anyone else have anything they want to... Yeah. She, she kind of moved around. She d d the first album was made for a small recording label called Bethlehem Records. And then, yeah, but she, unfortunately, when she recorded that first album, the one that we spoke about at the beginning of the night, the 13-hour 13, 13 session that produced the first album, she signed a check for $3,000, which to her at the time probably sounded like a huge amount of money. But in so doing, she r got rid of all of her rights to royalties. So that's why when that, that record, song... That record included My Baby Just Cares yeah. For Me. So when that, song, that, day when that song came back out in 1988 as part of the, the Chanel perfect, she got no money for that at all. No royalties, no nothing. Uh, even with the sales of the single I Love You Porgy, she would have been a multi-millionaire by the mid-60s. All the airplay. So I mean, it was quite typical of what happened to a lot of artists. Black to, and white, actually. It was, but to, to answer the question, I mean... Uh, she recorded a sequence of records for Philips in the in the 60s, which are probably where to go. Actually, I have that this box set, the Nina the Philips years, is eight of the kind of the main records, and that's a that's a good one to get if you want to get your your Nina hit. I think I think as well though the the first record that we're talking about, the one that was recorded for Bethlehem, for all that she sold the rights and everything, is incredibly important, and that's why we wanted to listen to a couple of tracks from that. And probably the, the best one to show off her piano playing, actually, because yeah. uh, she yeah. doesn't have the big orchestra and the horn sections. It's mm -hmm. just a piano trio and her voice. So if you want the piano side, that first album, and then on all those Phillips albums, the arrangements are phenomenal. It has all the ones you probably know, like Feeling Good and all those, the, the, the really big hits. Jamie, have you a parting thought on Nina? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think that she is... Uh, legendary. She's she's unsurpassed in in her. Uh, actually, my my master's is in authenticity in jazz performance, vocal jazz performance, and it's all draw, drawn around Nina Simone. So uh, she's she's amazing. Yeah, listen to her as much as you can. Your life will be better. Yeah. Laura, are you? Uh, I would pretty much uh, echo those sentiments. You know, <laughs> um, I still think that uh, she's underrated actually amongst you know critics and music fans and stuff today i think the fact that she is uh, transcends genres and kind of dips in and out of different styles of music actually makes it difficult for people to go okay right let's look at her in depth and see how she's so important so yeah i think we all need to be listening to her more and talking about her more yeah billy you've got a 
parting thought? It's a parting thought. Well, to echo what Laura just said there, the fact that she uh, bridged so many different genres. And just to go back very briefly to the idea that she did in a way that maybe a lot of people who have been oppressed maybe aspired to kind of playing the music of the oppressor in, in learning the classical music, but by accident fell upon the music that was actually closer to her roots. And I think that's something even as Irish people we can recognize in that we, for a long time, post-colonially and independence, felt very uncomfortable about our own traditional music. And then it took people like Oriada and that to actually go, hey guys, you've got a really rich thing here. So that I, as an Irish person, find her journey back to her own roots fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much, everybody. I often think that getting to listen to music, music is such a solitary thing uh, nowadays, and people have earbuds in and they're on the, on the, the, you know, doing something else. And getting to sit in a room with other people and listen to music, we kind of borrow each other's energy a bit, and we hear with other people's ears. And so that's what's great about, about this. Uh, so I'd like to thank um, Kenneth and Aoife and Aoife and Dave and IMC for putting this fantastic show on. Well done. Uh, there's, there's, there's more coming in the new year. You want to keep in touch with uh, the IMC's website to find out more about that. Um, I would like to thank our excellent panelists, Jamie Nancy, Laura Watson, and Billy O'Hanlon. And I'd like to thank all you for coming. Thank you very much, and good night.